0: This podcast is a presentation of uctv.tv, University of California Television. Like what you learn, help others discover uctv podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here to speak with the uh, speak with the group again and uh, always happy to to do it. This is a picture of Wuhan, China, where it uh, where it all started and uh we can as you can imagine this is a pretty big city with 11 million people in it. Uh and this is where the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus spread like wildfire uh with uh what at the time seemed like an astounding number of cases, 70,000 cases over the space of uh of 2 months. Currently yesterday in the United States we had 136,000 cases reported. So the 70,000 seems like chicken feed at at this point in time. So just to walk you through some basic science, uh, SARS is a coronavirus. We divide the world of viruses into two parts, those that have DNA uh, as their genetic material and those who have RNA as their genetic material. The DNA viruses tend to be big like pox viruses, like chicken pox uh, and uh, herpes and stuff like that. And while the uh, RNA viruses, polio, for example, Ebola, tend to be smaller. But this is in the land of RNA viruses, the SARS-CoV-2 and the coronaviruses in general are fairly large. And what that means, that's a good thing because they have an enzyme that can repair their, their RNA. So as they replicate, uh, they have the ability to correct errors in their RNA. So for that reason, they're, they remain relatively... Uh, they don't they don't mutate as much as say uh, HIV mutates as a uh, as they they go from one generation to the next. So that's good for us uh, for vaccines and uh, and therapeutics. The coronaviruses have there these are uh, viruses of animals and uh, humans. Uh, there are a number of uh, different subgroups. Uh, you're probably. You all probably have been infected with the alpha coronaviruses before, which cause up to 30% of upper respiratory infections in adults around the world. Uh, But then there are the beta coronaviruses, and the beta coronaviruses are bad actors. Uh, We have the original severe acute respiratory syndrome, or SARS, uh, which emerged in 2002 2002 in China and uh, swept around the world. Um, We also have something called the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS, M-E-R-S, Uh, which is the second one, and now this uh, new virus, uh, which we call SARS-CoV-2, the SARS coronavirus type 2. All of these, all the coronaviruses, the alphas, the betas, whether they're bad actors or whether they're relatively benign, have a spike protein on it. And if you look at this virus cross-sectionally, it looks like a crown, hence the name corona, Uh, not named after the beer I'd point out. And at the so here's the over here is the uh, what this looks like. Uh, here's the viral membrane here, this part down here, right? And as you go up, this is what the spike looks like. And at the tip of the spike is a, a protein loop called that we call the receptor binding domain. And if you think that this is kind of a lock and key, this is the uh, part of the protein that fuses with the receptor on the cell wall of epithelial cells of the lining cells. Of the respiratory tract, and uh, causes, and then causes there with that, with that locking in. Then this spike protein fuses, the whole cell, f- the whole viral, uh, viral, uh, virus fuses, and it uh, disgorges its genetic material into the host cell where it sets up shop. The, uh, the, the part of the cell wall that it binds to is a receptor called the angiotensin converting enzyme type 2 receptor and yes these are the same things as angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitors or ace inhibitors which many of you may take for uh, hypertension uh, but don't worry this doesn't make you more vulnerable or less vulnerable these uh the ace2 receptors are found on the membranes of in, in the lung down deep at the alveoli which are the breathing sacs at the end of the the bronchi in the upper air in the upper airway and remember that the conjunctivi the uh, eyes uh, of the eyes is part of the respiratory tract, and they have ACE, ACE2, um, uh, um, ACE2 receptors on them. And then also, also the glandular cells of the GI tract. This is the, this virus is spread by three ways. So this is how you get the virus out of someone who's infected and into uh, someone who's susceptible, or. Originally, out of an animal that was infected and into someone who is susceptible, these are bats mostly uh, that have these beta coronaviruses. So uh, the most typical way way of spread are from large respiratory droplets, and by large I mean tiny, like more than five microns, uh, and they're big enough to f- to go out and fall to earth with uh, just with gravity, uh, and that's the magic of six feet, uh, which is. Uh, you know, at WHO land, they say a, a meter and a half, uh, but it's about, you know, I think six feet is probably as good as is probably a, you want a little bit more distance, not less. Uh, so those are, uh, if you inhale one of those or if it hits you in the eye, um, that's how you get it you, because these things have the virus adhered uh, adhered to the outside of the droplets. These are, you know, spheres, uh, and that's how you get the, the virus gets introduced into your respiratory system. And then it's uh the viruses uh, leave the uh, uh leave the uh respiratory droplet bind to cells and start to uh, cause infection. There are also smaller uh, uh droplets that are less than five microns in diameter and those can remain suspended in the air. This is a big problem in intensive care units where you have the lower track of the lungs instrumented with like uh for for instance for endotracheal intubation and ventilation. Um, and so those are, uh, these smaller droplets can come from deeper in the uh, respiratory uh, tree. And so when you do things like put a catheter down to suck out uh, mucus or, or, or fluids, you can create sprays and uh, those are highly infectious. In real life, outside of hospital ICUs, uh, airborne spread is probably much less common than we than we fear, and I could frankly count the number of outbreaks on the fingers of one hand uh, that have occurred around the world that have been clearly documented as being caused by airborne spread. It's actually probably much more common than that. It's not vanishingly rare, but it probably only accounts for a few percent of all cases. And, but as we come back in in the winter time. Um, where uh, air can be uh, rehandled and recycled through heaters, we may see more of this. And then finally, there's fomite or surface transmission. This is somebody who coughs or sneezes. It hits the, it hits a surface like a table, for instance, or a, I, I think of the poles in the New York City subways. Uh, and then you go and touch it, and then you rub your eye or rub your nose and you inoculate it directly. This, this form, which is a form of transmission, which was really a big thing with SARS originally in 2002, is probably very, very unusual for SARS-CoV-2, and there are not uh, a lot uh, of uh, well-documented cases of transmission. So droplet spread uh, is far and away the most common. Uh, I told you about the ACE2 inhibitor uh, uh, before. Um, and you say, what's a respiratory droplet? Think of going out in the cold and breathing. And then when you say, I can see my breath, those are respiratory droplets, okay? Now, the natural history of this disease, and I'm gonna give you the timing here, and then I'll come back and talk about how many people are in each of these boxes. So you get exposed on day zero. You inhale the virus, the virus infects cells, and it starts to make more viruses. Right? So the whole business about viruses is that they're just pieces of RNA in this case, or DNA in other cases. They enter a cell, a human cell, they get converted to DNA. Their RNA gets converted to DNA. That gets taken up in the host's genome, and the machinery of the, of the cell is taken over. So instead of doing what it's supposed to be doing, it becomes a factory for making viruses. So it takes about three days to get enough virus uh, uh, around, you get high enough levels of virus that you can actually measure it with a test called polymerase chain reaction, which I'll talk about a little bit later. But these are the PCR tests that you hear people talk about. By uh, but there's people are still uh, still asymptomatic. Um, by day four, day four, people will shed will have high enough virus levels that they become infectious. And so, when we talk about transmission, we talk about pre symptomatic transmission, and that's this phase here. By day five, the people who are going to develop symptoms develop symptoms, uh, and they're uh, relatively mild uh, fever, cough, uh, fatigue, myalgia, muscle aches and pains, loss of taste and smell, diarrhea is not uncommon. They're infectious for the first few days of this phase, say from days four to maybe eight post-exposure, uh, post but then it drops off. And by the end of, uh, of, uh, of um, 12 days post-exposure, unless they have deep uh, lung disease, they are, uh, mo- almost everybody has stopped shedding virus. Now in a handful of people, uh, so we refer to that phase as the virologic phase. In a handful of people, They'll progress into a second week of disease with pneumonia, uh, and they can obviously can progress more rapidly than that. And they present with respiratory distress with pneumonia. Uh, they often will need ICU admission. Occasionally, will need uh, mechanical ventilation. And these people will remain infectious. These are r- relatively uncommon, but they'll remain. They may remain infectious for up to twenty uh, days. Now. And all of the mixed into all of this is that about 40 percent of patients develop no symptoms during the course of, the il, of their illness. So looking at it a different way, there are 40 percent who are asymptomatic, about 30 percent who are mildly symptomatic who have no dis, dyspnea means um, difficulty breathe, breathing, no shortness of breath, no abnormal chest x-rays. And there you know, these uh, oximeters, pulse oximeters that you can clip on the end of fingers and they tell you how much, what your blood oxygenation uh, levels are, This really uh, saturated, oxygen saturation, that'll be above, uh, equal to or above 94%. You can have more moderate disease, so when you move from mild to moderate, there's some evidence of lower respiratory tract disease on exam or on x-ray. Uh, the Chinese actually used uh, chest CT scans as a way to diagnose this. But the a partial pressure of oxygen, your, your oxygen saturation will remain, uh, continue to remain a high above, uh, at or above 94%. These people can be managed as outpatients unless they're very elderly or have a lot of underlying conditions. And then you move into people who are, who really truly have problems with oxygenation. It's below 94% on room air. Their respiratory rates are elevated. They have uh, pathology on X-ray or a chest CT scan. Um, And those, they have severe illness, that's about 10%. And then about 5% of people that progress to frank respiratory failure, septic shock, or multi-organ system dysfunction. And again, that's about 5%. Those are the people in the ICU, and those are the people who die. These terms get thrown around a lot, and I want to really be careful uh, in using them. The infection is with the SARS-CoV-2 virus. The clinical disease is called COVID-19, which stands for Coronavirus, uh, uh, coronavirus Infection uh, 2019. So it's the year and it's a coronavirus disease, right? That's the D is disease. So COVID-19 is the disease, SARS-CoV-2 is the infection. If you're asymptomatic, you have SARS-CoV-2 infection, but do not have COVID-19. So why do some people move from here to here to here to here? Well, there are a variety of factors that, that uh, predispose people to having worse, uh, more severe disease. Age uh, is one. Uh, older people tend to progress. Younger people tend not to. Active malignancies, chronic renal disease, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, uh, heart disease, a variety of different types of heart disease, Type two diabetes mellitus uh, obesity with a, a body mass index of greater than thirty um, kilometers per uh, sorry kilograms per meter squared a body surface area, a smoking sickle cell disease, and if they 've had a solid organ transplant there's some others that are uh, kind of mixed. I would put hypertension over in the strong predictor pregnancy c d c thinks is a predictor I have a whole series of every Brazilian woman who was uh, with, with COVID-19 that says otherwise. So we have, you know, kind of dueling series right now. And then there are a variety of other things that uh, more data are needed on. Uh, we know pretty well that HIV uh, doesn't tip the balance, or if it does, it's very small. To give you a little bit of uh, of, of science uh, here, let's concentrate first on um on the PCR. And this is from a nasopharyngeal swab. These are the ones where they go back, kind of back up into here, right, to get it. Um, and uh, so that will turn positive. So you have sort of an intermediate point here where they actually can measure it. It'll turn positive and then it'll remain positive for quite a while. Uh, and it will take uh, uh, basically weeks to come down. Um, it can come down faster, <clears throat> but. I'm not at all surprised when people are still PCR positive three or four weeks after they've uh, uh, after they've recovered. You can also uh, isolate a virus, which is really what we're talking about. This is the viral, sh- the the when the virus is most is replicating most rapidly, and is um, uh, and that's when people are infectious. This is when they have the highest viral loads um, and they're the most infectious. So here's kind of an arbitrary cutoff here. And you can see around day four, they become infectious, and that persists to day seven or so, okay? Um, And then around day 10, which corresponds with the virus dropping off, you'll get a um, a immunologic reaction with the development of antibody, uh, both the acute phase ones, IgM, as well as the longer term ones, uh, IgG. So you can see the antibodies are of no use for diagnosis, because they come after the infection's over Um, and we rely heavily on PCR, but also on other tests that detect pieces of the virus, viral protein. And these are so-called antigen tests. And these are the rapid tests uh, that you may have heard about. I'll come back and talk about testing later. Now, so so we have these antibodies that develop. These are all these antibodies here that are that develop, especially the IgG that persist for a while. Okay, there are lots of different types of antibodies, but there's one type that we want, which is the type that binds to the receptor binding domain, or the spike protein, and that keeps it from uh, uh, being, being able to attach to a cell. And those are called neutralizing antibodies. This is a large uh, series, as I recall, from Shanghai. Uh, where it measured neutralizing antibodies. You can see that out of these 175 patients, maybe a little less than like 8% had no antibodies at all, right? Another uh, group had uh, relatively few. So low was 30% overall. Medium low was 17%. Medium high was 39%. And high levels uh, were in in 14%. This is just measuring them uh, after they've uh, uh, at some period of time after they've recovered, and this is, these are neutralizing antibodies. so you can see there's a real differential response to neutralizing to de- for developing neutralizing antibodies. We also know that like all antibodies, neutralizing antibodies wane over time. Um, now they may come back because we have cells, memory cells that remind the immune system, oh yeah, we've seen this protein before. Spike protein, for instance, and we're going to develop a whole bunch of antibodies, and that's called an amnestic response. Um, so, but at least looking at this originally, this is a, a study in, in Vanderbilt. Uh, there were 18 healthcare workers who had high levels of neutralizing antibody at baseline because they'd been infected, right? As you followed them two months later, only 42% of those had measurable antibody. So it drops off below a measurable level in a lot of people. Interestingly, uh, six of eight people who were uh, who were uh, symptomatic uh, were uh, persistently seropositive, uh, so that's 75% of those, but whereas only a two of eight who were asymptomatic were, had, had persistence of antibodies. Now, that wasn't significant, and eight and eight add up to 16, not 18, I realized just now looking at this. But uh, the point is um, that people who are symptomatic may have more robust immune reactions than people who are asymptomatic. But I think the real take-home message here is that 58% of healthcare workers lost their neutralizing antibody uh, within two months. So that may be a problem. But these are my favorite kinds of studies. These are all kind of experiments of nature. So a very large U.S. commercial fishing boat from Seattle with a crew of 122 um, set out on, uh, uh, on a, uh, a cruise uh, in August. Uh, they were, uh, there was a, a group from the University of Washington who went out and drew blood and uh, checked for COVID-19 uh, as, they were, uh, as they were going out. Uh, during the, the the cruise, somebody who had tested negative because they were caught in the window period, in those three days before the the virus turns po- before the PCR turns positive, developed uh, COVID, and there was an attack rate of eighty six percent. Now, when they came back and measured everybody's blood, three crew members had neutralizing antibody from prior infection. None of them were none of them got infected during this uh, during this outbreak whereas of the 117 that didn't have neutralizing antibody, 103 became infected. And this was highly significant, even with these low numbers. So this would suggest that in the face of re-exposure, if you have existing neutralizing antibody, you're protected. Now, to throw into this mix is the whole thing about reinfection. Uh, And there are a handful of cases around the world. The most compelling is from a 33-year-old, they're all pretty compelling, but to give you an example, a 33-year-old man from Hong Kong uh, who had uh, two diagnoses of SARS-CoV-2 infection four and a half months apart. The first one was mild and the second one was asymptomatic. The second infection was acquired in Spain and he got picked up because they screened people at the border coming into Hong Kong. So they had a a, an example of the they had a a a saved specimen from his earlier uh, infection, uh, and the and this new one, and they were able to compare them, uh, doing whole genome sequencing, and it turns out that they were different, uh, uh, different virus, different strains. Uh, They were genetically unrelated, aside from being SARS-CoV-2. So. It's it really uh, it was a, this is the most compelling uh, story for a true second infection rather than prolonged viral shedding. The good news here is this: he was asymptomatic the second time around. There was a man in Nevada in Reno um, who uh, was reinfected relatively quickly, about two months after his first infection. Same kind of laboratory thing, but the second time he became uh, more uh, more symptomatic, which is something we worry about. A lot um, with this with this virus and with other viruses, there is a uh, a entity called antibody dependent enhancement where it's worse the second time you get it, and the first time this happens, for instance, in dengue fever, uh, and there was some concern that this might be happening, but you know this is the, the so we have some cases where they were less sim- where they were asymptomatic the second time, and this one case where they were more, more symptomatic the second time. I think the thing to take home from these, this, these cases is that as a rare phenomenon, reinfection can occur, uh, and it occurs something on the order of about four months later. Uh, and that would suggest that maybe there is some waning immunity, uh, and that could be problematic. Um, we may be, There may be a lot more of these going on, and we just don't know it. Now the other thing that goes on about in the dynamics of viral transmission are so-called superspreading events. These are uh, exposures that occur um, uh, from one person, and a whole bunch of other people are infected. Um, and this is a, a list, kind of from an early earlier review of uh, people uh, looking of, of looking at. Um, uh, the proportion of people who are infected at, um, at sort of larger events. Here's a meal for with 47 people, 10 people were infected. Here's one with, um, uh, this was in France. This is a pretty well-publicized uh, outbreak. Uh, 11 people were exposed uh, and five became in- infected. Um, so we know from these series that's, that super spreading is a real deal. Um, and this suggests that transmission is is driven by a relatively small number of high risk close contacts and if you'll allow me the indulgence of scrolling back here for a second um, that's because this is truly a case of sorry this is truly a case of wrong place wrong time. what you're doing is you're catching people in in a in a crowd. When they're there at the most infectious part of their illness, uh, one of the first people in New York uh, to spread spread it to 122 other people. Um, we know that at the White House Rose Garden, there probably was a super spreader there, and uh, they spread it to I don't know whatever whatever the final tally was, 20 uh, odd people, and transmission still occurring from that cluster. As you know, uh, uh, the chief of staff Meadows. And a secretary of HUD, uh, the doctor, the neurosurgeon, whatever his name is, uh, both became infected. And likely, I, I would imagine, are, are secondary cases from this original cluster. But it's people. What you're doing? It's not that something's anatomically different, like they have a big nose, or there's something immunologically different. No, they're just there during this period of hyperinfectiousness. And what they think is in Hong Kong, they've looked at this really carefully in Hong Kong. They think about half the cases are from, uh, are sporadic cases. They're from a single, there's one person exposes one other person, whereas about half the cases are, um, are, are spread events where there's more than one person, where, where one person infects more than one other person. Uh, And it's, um, uh, there's a, uh, there's some math around this that we could walk through. Some place. Some people have estimated that uh, that eighty percent of cases are caused by twenty percent of people who are just at this wrong time, in the wrong place, wrong time, doing the wrong thing. I might add, um, and uh, that this is what uh, this is what happens. And here's just to give you an idea. A little put this a little bit more. So here's this period of of highest viral load here around uh, day uh, day four or five post exposure, right? So this guy at this point will uh, infect uh, both people with whom he comes in contact. Whereas if you look out here farther after the viral load drops, um, you come into contact with, uh, with five people and only one of them will become infected, right? So that's what this whole idea of super spreading is. And this is just sort of more math about uh, about that. But again, think wrong place, wrong time like this, right? So these are the cases, one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven okay I always like the military officers back here because uh, they all have masks on you see how many masks there are in this crowd mm, zero maybe um, and I thought that would be a great kind of combo uh you know compare and contrast uh, oh there's one guy with a mask compare and contrast a um, uh, uh, little study to do So that's about epidemic dynamics. I want to switch now to epidemiology and kind of where we are uh, with this uh, virus now. And I'm going to start off talking about the world then the U.S. and then uh, California. So there have been more than 50 million cases worldwide that have been diagnosed and reported uh, and 1.2 million deaths. Um, If you look at the leading countries, the US is far and away in the lead, followed by India, whose case counts are starting to come down. Brazil, France, Russia, Spain, Argentina, the United Kingdom, Colombia, and Italy. I think one thing that people underappreciate is how heavily infected Latin America has been. Mexico, Peru, Ecuador are all could be on this list. Panama, Costa Rica, have taken big, big, big hits from uh, coronavirus. This is by WHO region and WHO regions, North and South America are grouped together. This is the summer surge in the U.S. And you can see how it's still, you know, we still have lots of cases here in the Americas. This is South and Southeast Asia. So this is mostly India, the little extent Bangladesh. This is Europe. Europe is really having a tough time right now. This is the Eastern Mediterranean cases, largely in um, in Iran. The blue is Africa with cases mostly in South Africa. And then finally, the the uh, red or whatever color that is, is uh, the Western Pacific. And that's China. You can see this is the Chinese outbreak back here, right? This is when this all started. And, they, and they've done a good job. China, Korea, Taiwan, all those countries have good done a good job keeping a lid on this. This is what's going on in Europe. This is these are death rates, by the way. This is mortality. These cases of deaths. Um, here we are in Europe with an early surge. This is the you know all these horror stories from Italy and Spain. This is what's happening with the case counts now. So you can see this is much worse than it was before. And before everybody can say, "Oh, but the death rates haven't come up," they are coming up in Europe, right? So we're up to um, you know twenty thousand deaths per week across Western and Central Europe. Uh, This just gives you an idea of where there are uh, lots of cases around the world uh, right now with uh, Western, Central, and even Eastern Europe uh, heavily impacted. I talked about the Americas. Uh, There are a few other little uh, places. This is Jordan, uh, Georgia. uh, Who else is really dark brown? Anyway, it gives you an idea of where uh, there are cases uh, right now. In the United States, we're well into our third wave of this epidemic. This was in um, April, May. This is when New York, Connecticut, New Jersey were so heavily impacted. This was in the summer, where this was mostly in the Sun Belt uh, and the South. And now it's taken off uh, in the uh, mid part of the country, uh, with rapid accumulation of case, cases. And we've had more than a hundred thousand cases a day for the last uh, week. There were um, there we're up to ten million. 191,000 cases, and there were 130,000 reported on November 9th. Um, there are, I'll get into the geography of this, but there are very few places that are spared. If you look at where the cases have risen most in the past seven days by per capita, North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa, Wisconsin, Nebraska, Wyoming, uh, Minnesota, Montana, Illinois, and Utah, so that cluster of states. In the upper Midwest, Great Plains and the Rockies, uh, but absolute numbers of cases, Illinois, Texas. Texas has the most number of cases in the country. Uh, Wisconsin, California, just because it's a big state, Florida, Michigan, Ohio, Minnesota, Indiana, and Iowa. Um, you can also see the number of deaths uh, here in the United States and what that epidemic uh, looks like. There have been 238,776 deaths of the, as of yesterday was 745 on November 9th. And you can see that we're running, sort of flirting with about a 1,000 deaths uh, per day, which is all preventable, unfortunately. Um, This gives you an idea of where these kind of early uh, clusters of of disease were. So this is when it was mostly in New York and the upper uh, Midwest. Uh, I can't remember what this was. This looks like Columbus, Georgia. There was a big outbreak in New Orleans and Detroit early on. And then in the summer, it got became very uh, prevalent in the um, in the South, and through into the um, into the sun through the Sun Belt into California, and then more recently you get this big these big spikes here. This is really this is a month ago, by the way, these big spikes here in the middle of the country, and this is in fact what the what the current map looks like. Red here is bad, Uh, and just look at the number of cases. This is per hundred thousand in. Wisconsin, Illinois, Minnesota, Iowa, Indiana, Missouri, even in, down into Tennessee and Arkansas and Oklahoma. You can see and then all out through the populated parts of the Great Plains uh, and the uh, and the Rockies including the Intermountain West here in Salt Lake City and, and its environment environs. So this thing is really spread like wildfire. And in fact, the only states that are um, that are Seem to be doing relatively well right now. Are New Hampshire and uh, or Vermont, New Hampshire and Maine, and Hawaii? I was last week. I was saying California, Oregon, and Washington were doing okay. I think it's finally caught up with us. Here we are in California. I I gave a talk uh, a week ago when we were here at this point. I was saying, "Well, maybe we dodged a bullet." No, we haven't dodged a bullet, and uh, we've had almost a million cases in California. Uh, we had 8,000 new cases on Monday. We've had 18,000 deaths and uh, 29 more deaths on on Monday. The Most cases in the past seven days were in the big Southern California counties, the big, not big in terms of size, but big in terms of population, Los Angeles, San Bernardino, San Diego, Riverside, and Orange, and then in the Valley, Sacramento, Fresno, and Kern, and uh, here in the Bay Area and Santa Clara and Alameda. And if you look per capita, you get into, you know, why are these things counties, like Alpine County? You know, give me a break. Um, how do we know this is real? Because hospitalizations are going up. And these are, this is a statewide. This is all hospitalizations. These are ICU hospitalizations. Um, and you can see, you know, we're not that far different with this thing trending up than we were back in uh, in April. Um, we have a lot of capacity, but we may need more. Uh, some other points here. This is just looking at the positive, the, the proportion of tests that are positive. It's now gone up from a, a low of about 3.2 up to 4.1% most recently. Uh, and the other thing is there's a statistic called the effective reproductive number, which is abbreviated as R sub E or R sub T if you're British, Um and what we want that number to be is less than 1 and what it means is it's for every single for every case of covid-19 or for sars-cov-2 infection how many people become how many secondary cases are are there if i have if i have sars-cov-2 infection how many people do i infect on average and what you want this number to be is less than 1 if it's 1 everybody infects one person it becomes endemic in a population if it's more than one, it's reflecting spread through the population and growing prevalence. If it's less than one, it's declining. And we've kept it less than one here in California for quite a while, but over the last month, it's uh, crept up. And we're currently, uh, I think today at 1.14 uh, for the rsb e, which is out of control and it needs to be brought back down. Now, this is just gives you... Uh, you know, what the, what the curves look like in these counties, as with many things in California, Los Angeles, the largest county by far, drives the train. Uh, and uh, these are peri-urban parts of these, uh, not San Diego, but Riverside, Orange, San Bernardino are all the kind of parts that are near uh, Los Angeles. Uh, and unfortunately, here in the Bay Area, both Santa Clara and Alameda are trending up as well. Here in the immediate Bay Area, these are the nine counties of the Bay Area. You can see we have not avoided this spike. It's gone up from about 400 cases a day uh, to, about, uh, to maybe about 600, 700 cases a day with this big, huge jump um, on November 9th. Um, this is not good, uh, and it reflects a lot of transmission. Uh, fortunately, deaths are re- remain relatively low here. Not that any death is, you know, we can't discount deaths. But compared to some places, uh, these numbers are, are pretty low. Most of the, uh, in most of September and October, when I gave these talks, these numbers were, had, were going down. All, all the cases were going down with the exception of Sonoma, which has had a lot of problems, largely because of the fires. At least that's what it seems like, that people who were, were infected, who were isolating at home had to come out, and they ended up infecting a lot of other people as they had to evacuate their homes. Um, These colors represent the state's um, tier system, which I'll talk about in a second. But this gives you an idea. So in Sonoma County, there are 11.1 cases per 100,000 per day. In San Francisco, it's much smaller, 1.7 cases per 100,000 per day. And then these are the uh, county-level R sub-Es. And so you can see above one, barely below one, well above one, barely below one, barely above one, barely above one, above one, above one, and below one. Um, And so what we're trying to do is is keep everything below one here. We're trying to keep the proportion positive uh, low. Uh, and we're trying to keep the case counts uh, low. Uh, we're not doing a particularly great job with the case counts uh, right now. Uh, but uh, I think it will hopefully get better in the in the future. Although, you know, a jump like this, I don't know if you can really see this, but this 1,300 cases on November 9th is a real, real, real problem. And maybe a harbinger of things to come. Uh, and this just shows you what San Francisco's R-Sub-E looks like. And you can see it's, you know, these are different estimates. And so this is a kind of a, a composite estimate. It's been over one for, it was over one for a, a couple of weeks and then finally dropped down below one um, uh, on, uh, on Sunday. That's epidemiology. I'm going to talk about prevention. What are we trying to do here? We're trying to not have this happen. This is all infectious disease deaths per 100,000 per year in the United States this is the 1918 1919 influenza this is hiv okay so this was an enormous shock to the system and uh when um uh and it spread around the world uh with the armistice uh with troops going to europe for world war 1 and coming home from europe after world war 1 uh and it really was a worldwide pandemic that was facilitated by what was what uh, they thought of as modern transportation. So we have two goals. One is to minimize the number of new cases by decreasing R sub E and also trying to uh, deal with super spreaders, which is that letter is K for the dispersion uh, constant. And then when we want to flatten and prolong the outbreak to assure the adequacy of healthcare resources. So if we spread it out over time, and to buying time for antivirals and eventually vaccine, which we've done pretty successfully. Now we have a relatively limited number of non-pharmaceutical interventions. At the individual level, we can wear masks, we can maintain social distance or physical distance. We can stay home if we're sick, because if you're sick and coughing, the masks don't work very well and we can wash our hands or use alcohol. That's really around fomite transmission, probably a bit overblown. Uh, What are our public health interventions? Well, we can do shelter in place. A cordon sanitaire is is a public health term, which means you put a belt around an area and don't let people in or out, which is what the Chinese do when they basically will go into a, if there are cases, they'll go into a city, they'll lock it down, not let anybody in or out, and they'll test everybody to identify cases. Um, We do uh, case investigation and contact tracing. And the reason we do all of this stuff is so we can isolate people who are infected and infectious and quarantine people who have been exposed and are likely to develop infection. We can do testing, and I'll talk more about testing. Um, We can do a lot of focused testing, and that's going to become, as the technology improves, we're going to get better and better and better at that. And then in indoor spaces, we can increase ventilation and change filtration systems on, um, uh, on air handlers, so either air conditioners or, uh, or or heaters. Now this is a great this is a great uh, lesson. So 1918, San Francisco port City, 350,000 people. Um, They knew the influenza was coming because it had happened in the spring. Elaborate plans um, for what what they're going to do when influenza came. It came in uh, September, -September, mid-September, on a guy who was uh, coming from Chicago on the train. He was isolated at the Palace Hotel, uh, but it got out and spread around the city quite quickly. The Board of Health uh, got on the case and issued a mask ordinance that everybody had to wear masks if they were out in public. If you were over the age of two, which explains this little guy down here. Okay. Everybody had to wear masks. These masks were made out of gauze. They were two-ply, and they worked quite well. People hated them. They hated them. And, um, you know, there were maybe a thousand deaths at that point in time uh, by around the time of the armistice, which was 102 years ago today, just to point that out. Um, And uh, so the Board of Health backed off and said, okay, we're going to get rid of masks. And on uh, noon, on November 21st, 10 days after the armistice was signed, 1918, all the whistles blew, the sirens blew in, in, uh, in San Francisco, and people threw away their masks. And there was this complete rock rock-out party all up and down Market Street. The Chronicle desi- described it as having a sea of gauze uh, on the sidewalks and in the streets and in the gutters. Uh, and, you know, so it was like great success story. The only problem was is that come April, there were another uh, at least 1,400 deaths. Uh, so, you know, as much as anything, here you have a story of where they're doing pretty well with masks to prevent death. Everybody got rid of the masks and they doubled their their death count. Uh, So um, it's a more complicated story than that, but it's uh, worthwhile to listen to because it has real parallels um, with today. Masks reduce airborne transmission. They reduce them from the person who's infected. And remember 40% of people are asymptomatic, right? And of the 60% who are symptomatic, a third of them transmit or are infectious. Uh, you know, if you think of the three days, their most infectious days, four, five, and six, one of those days, day four, they are pre-symptomatic. They haven't developed symptoms yet. So that's why we want people to wear masks outside because maybe 60% of transmission is from people who are asymptomatic. The, 20, the 40% plus a third of the other three days right? for people who are symptomatic. The other thing is, is that if you wear a mask, you protect yourself. Um, it cuts down on your chances of inhaling uh, particles um, and it's, uh, you know it's, it works really well. And the third thing that Professor Monica Gandhi here has worked a lot on is that we also think that if you're wearing masks, if you do get infected, you're gonna get infected with a smaller, uh, a smaller number of viral particles. And as a, as a consequence, have less severe disease. So that's like three reasons to wear masks. Um, The British modeled this out. uh, And this is looking at uh, four options. 80% of people wore masks. Uh, Social distance continues after lockdown. Uh, It's lifted. This is a May 31st lockdown. The total infected population is 2.5%. And it takes 276 days till its virus is extinguished. Here's a yellow 50% masks. Social distancing continues uh, and you end up with seven point four percent of the population infected and it's no it's not going down. Blue um, you have a lockdown instead of universal masking um, which continues indefinitely uh, it takes three hundred and sixty nine days uh, to eliminate it and it uh, takes uh, and you end up with five and a half percent of the population. Infected, and then the gray is social distancing after lockdown ends, so try and do it all with social distancing and you can see that doesn't work very well at all so of these the masking seems to be really, really, really important in terms of a uh, in terms of uh, uh cutting down on spread and, and elimination. People don't wear masks in large parts of the United States. Um, this is looking at uh, the proportion of public wearing masks most or all of the time. And this is exactly where all these outbreaks are going on right now, okay? California is pretty good. Um, the West Coast is pretty good. The East Coast is pretty good. Illinois and uh, Minnesota are good, but not quite good enough. And then this is the percentage of people surveyed uh, by this uh, by this group at uh, Carnegie Mellon who, um, who knew someone, who knows someone who's sick so that's kind of a rough estimate of how much disease there is. So here in North and South Dakota, actually the two most heavily impacted states per capita, almost 40% of people knew someone who'd had COVID. Out here, it seems relatively uncommon. Up here in this New Hampshire, sorry, this is Vermont. and New Hampshire and Maine, it seems relatively less common uh, as well. So this is another kind of you know gross estimate of of of, uh, of mask wearing and, and and cases, and you can you know us loving math and, and graphs. We plot this out proportion of of the public wearing masks, proportion of people wearing masks in public. Most uh, some are most of the most or all of the time versus the proportion portion who know someone with COVID symptoms. Again, this is like in disease incidence. You can see what this you know what this relationship looks like here. With uh, you know South Dakota, North Dakota, Wyoming, way up here, and then California's way down, uh, way down here, where we have high levels of masking and relatively fewer people infected, uh, at least per capita. This is uh, this is great. This is on the uh, old Key Line, and I think this is in Rockridge, uh, but it was it's certainly in Oakland. We know that part. And this woman didn't quite get the message about covering your nose. You come back. to to say a couple of words about other things. So masks are good. Now I talk about social distancing. Social distancing is important. And I'm showing you this, these data, early data from Wuhan uh, that were published in, uh, I think late, uh, late January, no, probably, no, mid, late February. And here are these periods of time. Okay, you didn't have anything going on here. Uh, this was, there's was nothing happening here. The R sub E was 3.54, here it was 3.32. They locked down on January 23rd. It fell in the first week to 1.18, and then by the uh, second and third weeks to 0.51, and subsequently to 0.28. So this is this huge drop off uh, in R sub E's that was directly observed in Wuhan Uh, through their forced shelter-in-place program, which is a lot more draconian than ours. Uh, Here's some modeling uh, from Germany that would suggest that um, uh, with relatively sort of, you know, it kind of depends on how stringent they are uh, with lockdown. And if they get to the really stringent uh, part, uh, you can see that it starts to, that the predicted number of cases Uh, Levels off, whereas with these other sort of less severe bans, you have increasing cases. uh, And uh, uh, here, with the sort of in between uh, kind of uh, 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 interventions. This is um, uh, Professor Gandhi's favorite study. I've heard her talk about it ad nauseum. Three companies of Swiss in the Swiss army, uh, companies like Companies of Soldiers, 120, right? In two companies, there was no social distancing or masks. Thirty percent developed illness. Sixty-two uh, percent got infected. In the third company, um, there was either they did either social distancing or masks, so one or the other. Fifty had fifteen percent of the people got infected, and zero percent got ill. So that's another uh, kind of indirect measure that suggests um, social distancing as well as masking as a role. Now, California's blueprint for a safe economy, this is what all these colors are and stuff. Um, this is a, this was the original one, by the way, before you panic. Um, this is based on, um, this is really about social distancing. All the interventions that are keyed off of the county level of risk have to do with, with keeping people apart and not mixing uh, between groups. Um, so, for instance, indoor dining, gymnasia, those kinds of things are uh, are not allowed if you're here in these highest uh, risk uh, tiers. So, this is an example of how somebody's taken the social distancing uh, parameters and put them into uh, and put them into place. And this is driven by numbers of cases and the proportion of tests that are positive. So now let's talk about testing. So there are a whole variety of considerations in testing. One is the accuracy. How well does the test perform? How well does it detect cases? That's sensitivity. And how well does it differentiate cases from non-cases? That's specificity. Some other considerations, how frequently are you going to test? So the the test they were using in the White House to screen people with on a one-time basis was not designed for that. Um, and it was also not designed for asymptomatic people. And that's how the person with, uh, who got in, who was a, the super spreader and uh, that kind of early period of hyperinfectiousness. We talk about uh, turnaround time and we hear about point of care testing. Uh, another consideration, who collects the specimen? Is it home collection or is it collected in a clinic or uh, something else, right? Drive-throughs. What's the biological fluid we test? So nasopharyngeal or oropharyngeal swabs, which are deep swabs and they're uncomfortable. Tracheal aspirates, which truly are uncomfortable. Anterior nasal swabs, right here. The oral uh, sulcus, which is here, between your cheek and gum, or saliva. The NBA used uh, saliva testing. You just uh, spit into a straw uh, or actually into a pipette as it ended up. And that was enough for them to be able to test. And then another con- uh, consideration: was whether you combine uh, 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 specimens from multiple people together, uh, with the thought that if it's negative, everybody's negative. Um, and that has a, some math to it, and it's it's not a bad idea, but it's not a great idea if it's say more than 20% prevalence. But you have to go back and retest everything if one of them, if if the pool is positive. So these are the um, kind of the big uh, tests that we have up here. We can look for RNA, right? And there are two ways to do that. We have these are PCRs, right? Both of both of these are PCR tests. One is we one is a quantitative test. This is real time PCR. Um, this turns positive three days post exposure. You can get the results in four to eight hours, and it's highly, highly, highly sensitive. This is the gold standard. There are another series of things, both isothermal and loop-mediated isothermal amplification, which is a qualitative test. Um, that as the ability, these are, can be done as a point-of-care test, and they have rapid turnaround. They're somewhat less sensitive. They have a uh, you need more RNA, uh, more uh, more viral particles to detect this as a positive thing. Um, Antigen tests tests for viral proteins. This is looking for RNA. These are looking for proteins. The coats, for instance, uh, these turn positive three to four days post-exposure. Uh, they are very rapid, they have fifteen minutes, but they have not high sensitivity. And this was these were the types of tests that were being used in the White House. And then finally, we have antibody tests, where we can measure uh, IgG to either the spike protein or to the cap to the capsule around the nucleus. The, the the nucleus of the virus, those don't turn positive until twelve days post exposure, um, and it's you know they're highly sensitive and that they can get the results in not unreasonable amounts of time, but it really comes down to these three. This is kind of the runoff, um, and I it depends on what we're what we're trying to do. There's a very interesting guy at the Harvard School of Public Health named Michael Minna. I kid you not. I kept thinking I had his name wrong and I was getting him and conflating him with the chef, but, you know, whatever. What he said is look at a test, say, that has, I say, an antigen test. And an antigen test, it doesn't turn positive until you're sort of up here, farther up on this on this curve because yeah, you have to have more RNA around in order to detect it or more Viruses around in order to detect it. Here, an antigen test, you're detecting protein, right? Down here, if you have a PCR test, this is gold standard. You're going to hit it right off the bat. You're in good shape. What he says is, okay, this is a test that costs $5 each. This is a test that costs $125. Why don't we just test everybody every three days, right? Because we'll hit this period by if we're doing three days, Whereas if we do uh, PCRs once a week, we're going to miss the most infectious part, uh, and uh, are going to have a positive PCR because the PCR stay up for a while, but they'll be out of the infectious period. So if you can quarantine, you can isolate them all you want. It's not going to make any difference in terms of disease control. Whereas if you do antigens rap you know, constantly, you're going to hit this early peak. And you're going to be able to act on it in terms of isolation, contact tracing, much more rapidly. I think this is a really interesting idea. And and a lot of places are trying to put it into practice. What the White House did wrong was they were using it as a single test rather than doing it in series. Now, another thing you may have heard about in terms of disease control is herd immunity. Herd immunity is a term from veterinary medicine. And it refers to the proportion of the population that needs to have durable immunity. And durable is a big word here uh, before the before the viral spread stops. So the virus can't find a susceptible host is what it boils down to. And there's a formula for this, which is RE minus 1 over RE. Um, and so if the RE is 3, remember I showed you that stuff from on where it was like 3.85? If it's 3, the herd immunity would be a 3 minus 1 divided by 3 or 67%. And from a variety of outbreaks, uh including pla like at San Quentin and Avonall State Prison, uh we think the herd immunity probably lies between somewhere between sixty and eighty percent. You saw it when on that ship I the, the fishing ship I told you about, it was I think it was eighty-three percent. So those are kind of those closed closed things where nobody can really get away from each other. Um that may be overestimating where herd immunity lies, but we're probably talking in the sort of 60% sixty to 70% range. This is a review um, that was done on herd immunity. And you get an idea, uh, so measles, you need 95% of the population uh, with a basic reproductive number of 14 and a half uh, for people to be immune from measles. From polio, uh, it's, uh, it's closer to 85%. Uh, for smallpox in India, uh, it was closer to uh, a little bit below 80 uh, percent. This is uh, the H1N1. The darker green is the H1N1 influenza. They estimated SARS at around a little bit more than 70, and at least here, this guy estimated it SARS-CoV2 at 60 percent. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting phenomenon, uh, and um, you know, it different it depends on what your basic. This is a different way of saying this. What your effective reproductive number is, or this they have it here is basic reproductive number, which is related. so same idea. Um, the number of secondary cases per primary case, and uh, here they estimated sixty percent. I think I actually think it's probably a little higher. You have heard people, including current members of the White House task force, say that we should just let everybody get infected, and therefore, and that's a way we can achieve herd immunity. Well, to start with. Um, the immunity is not necessarily durable. Um, This is a a much longer story. But for the other coronaviruses, immunity lasts sort of one respiratory season. It lasts for, you know, a few, uh, you know, several months. It may last as long as 18 months in some some series. But it it goes away unless you're being constantly re-stimulated. So and we have this these cases of reinfection, which is a concern. And so I think that the you know the idea here is that um, we may uh, we probably can't count on durable uh, immunity in the absence of a vaccine. The second thing is is even in places that tried to achieve herd immunity like Sweden, they never got above ten percent. Uh, and to go from ten percent to seventy percent uh, will equate with massive amounts of mortality in the uh, in older people and people with comorbid conditions and oh by the way, sixty percent of the adult population has comorbid conditions. okay, now to the good news. So the way to get to herd immunity is through vaccines and vaccines are uh, are um, uh, are starting to come off the line. Uh, there are different uh, approaches. So there are nucleic acid vaccines, so-called messenger RNA vaccines. That's the Moderna uh, vaccine. That's the Pfizer vaccine that uh, had the big uh, splash on Monday. Uh, there are inactivated virus vaccines, which is the way we do lots of viruses. So the Salk vaccine, for instance, um, is an inactivated polio virus uh, vaccine. A lot of the influenza vaccines that we use or inactivated viruses, basically, just take the whole virus and kill it, and then inject it, and it gets a and its its protein coats are um, are intact, so the immune system sees it. It creates antibodies. It creates memory cells. We have live attenuated vaccines. This is like oral polio vaccine. Right, these are vaccines that are in in uh, viruses that are closely related to um, uh, to the agent you're trying to prevent. And so that when you stimulate immunity to that virus, to this vaccine virus, it'll carry over to the naturally occurring virus. And this is polio as an example. Smallpox is an example where we actually immunize people with cowpox. We can have protein or peptide subunit vaccines, where we're just trying to inject pieces of the virus for the of the outer coat of the virus to stimulate immunity to the outer coat of the virus, which is what the immune system sees. This is, for instance, why we do hepatitis B vaccine. And then we have viral-vectored vaccines, and we only have one of these, and that's for Ebola. Uh, and this is using a, another virus, a benign virus like adenovirus, say. So that's the example of AstraZeneca uh, or the uh, Janssen uh, and, and J&J vaccines, um, which are um, uh, use, a, use a different virus to get into a cell, and as part of its genetic, and these are benign viruses, but as part of its genetic makeup, they've inserted a piece of RNA that will code for the spike protein. So the idea with these things is that we'll get, especially with the nucleic acid and the viral vectored proteins, is that you'll set up this sort of shop, and the cells, which won't be damaged because these are just it's either just a tiny piece of RNA or it's a benign infection, will uh, churn out on a fairly continuous basis, spike proteins um, that the immune system will see. And so instead of waning off over time, because it'll be constantly stimulated, um, you'll have robust immunity going forward. Now, we know that there are, um, I'll talk about this in a second, there are six vaccines that are already in use. Now, unfortunately, you need to join the People's Liberation Army in China or uh, or the Russian military in order to get them, um, but there are, are are six. I think three are in China, one in Russia, and two in the United Arab Emirates, um, and um, they're not. Uh, they seem to have taken a few shortcuts. Uh, we have at least four in trials, phase late phase three trials here in the United States. Those are the Moderna, the uh, uh, Pfizer, the AstraZeneca, and the J and J ones. Now. Uh, so the big news was that Pfizer and its German partner BioNTech announced on Monday uh, an interim analysis of their mRNA vaccine, and it showed 90% efficacy in preventing infection at seven days after the second dose. So that means in we took a hundred people who got it. Okay, they. Um, uh, this is a more complicated calculation than this, but I'm going to give it to you in relatively simple. That ninety percent of them uh, uh, did not develop um, uh, infection when they were when they were exposed naturally exposed to the virus. There were no ser- serious safety concerns. Um, there have these are big trials. They typically involve tens of thousands of people. They've uh, they have a date. They have a target of one hundred and sixty four COVID cases um, or actually infections, SARS CoV two infections uh, for the trial endpoint. And they've accumulated 94 so far, and accumulating 70 more is not going to take very long. So, we would expect this to kind of be finished, uh, have a um, uh, have an application for to the FDA for an, for emergency use authorization, and to be released in mid ish December. Uh, the problems with this vaccine are. Uh, first of all, it's going to be relatively limited stock. It's an in, warps, uh, Operation Warp Speed has done an interesting thing, which is to take these candidate vaccines and start manufacturing them before the trials are finished. So they're just taking a risk that they're going to work. If they do work, we have a stock ready to go. Uh, but it's still relatively limited. These are all two-dose series. Uh, so if they have 100 million doses ready, that's enough for 50 million people. So it raises the question about who gets vaccinated first. Another question is how well does it perform in people with uh, risk of severe disease? So the elderly, people with underlying conditions, that's why they have to completely finish the trial, get out to the 164. So they'll have data on on this point here. And then finally, these are not easy to move around. This is really complicated logistics. It requires uh, refrigeration or freezing at minus 70 degrees centigrade, uh, up to about 24 hours before administration. Uh, so there's a lot of logistics about moving this from point A to point B, getting it ready, and having it um, uh, kept at the right temperature until you're ready to administer it. Um, and uh, the uh, President Trump has tasked the army with dealing with this. And I was talking to my colleague today at Stanford, and she said they were coming in to set up uh, trailers and stuff in the across from the stadium at Stanford, in the eucalyptus groves, uh, in order to uh, to set up vaccine distribution uh, centers. So, this is what the future holds, um, and this is uh, uh, this is the most likely scenario, and this is in terms of cases. right, so this is cases per day, here's 300,000, here's 200,000 cases per day. We're down here around, right now, we're at about a little more than 100,000 cases a day. Um, And we're gonna, uh, the the expectation, this is in the absence of everything kind of continuing on as it is, is it will be pushing uh, 300,000 cases a day by the 1st of January. If everybody acts like it's Florida and there are no restrictions, it's going to be a lot higher if everybody acts like California, or Northern California, I should say, and there are we remain relatively locked down with a lot of mask wearing. It can be significantly lower. This is really true for for um, uh, for uh, mortality as well. Uh, so the and the, you heard the candidates sort of throw these numbers around. But here with masking and um, uh, pretty, pretty, pretty strict uh, adherence to, uh, to masking and social distancing, the expectation is you could prevent 100,000 deaths by January 1st. In the absence of masking and you know everybody pretending everything's fine, you're going to end up maybe with a, uh, more than 400,000 deaths cumulatively by the 1st of January. So what's the future hold from now until spring? The vaccines are not widely available. Uh, they'll only be used for the highest risk populations. Uh, we're well into our third, uh, third wave, uh, and that's here in the West without the colleges and universities really coming back onto campus and without high schools and middle schools reopening, that's where most of the transmission will take place. There'll be continued need for masking, social distancing, and reopening businesses will depend on local epidemiology and politics and we hope we continue to have low uh, mortality. In the spring through the late summer, the vaccines will go out to the general public. There'll be variable uptake due to vaccine hesitancy and frank refusal, and whether transmission can be sustained depends on how much, what the vaccine coverage is, what the efficacy is, and whether we are avoiding things like mass crowd events with super spreading, how many people are wearing masks, all those kinds of things. So we'll likely need to have vaccination levels in excess of 60 to 70% to achieve herd immunity. And if you have a 90% effective vaccine, you would need, need to add 10% on top of that. If we end up with low coverage, if it's much less than 60%, we may end up with a two-tiered system of people who've been vaccinated who have green thing on their cell phones uh, or who haven't been, right? And so you have green, you can go into the movie theater, red, you can't. And we're still gonna need masks and social distancing. And we hope that people end up looking like this with everybody masked until we can get everybody vaccinated. And then I just wanted to end on, because I'll be asked this question I know about what to do for Thanksgiving. The simple answer is don't. Okay, whatever you wanna do, don't do it. Um, keep Thanksgiving within your families, within your current households, avoid mixing. And that means the kids coming home from college too, unfortunately. I know everybody's going to do it anyway, but that's the real advice. Um, if you're going to – people are going to be coming uh, – if the kids are coming home from college, they should, they need to get tested. Right? They probably should be tested before they leave and when they get in. Um, if, you're mix, if you're having a couple of households together, do it outdoors instead of indoors. Have people at separate tables for separate households. Don't do the father-of-the-bride routine of bouncing around between tables and knocking over drinks. Get people to wear masks. I say, you know, think about serving all the food in the uh, in the kitchen, and then uh, handing it out, passing it out, rather than everybody kind of getting together at a buffet or passing things around. It just brings on a lot of additional contact. I, I also think that <laughs> you could sh- this is the time to shop online, and have the food delivered, and stay out of Whole Foods on Wednesday, uh, and then I wouldn't live up to my public health spurs unless I reminded you not to cook the stuffing inside the turkey, that's a risk of salmonella. And if you cut up poultry like giblets on cutting boards, uh, uh, make sure you thoroughly clean them before you cut up foods like uh, crudités or salads that will be eaten raw. So with that advice, um, I'm happy to answer questions. Thanks very much.
1: Thank you so much, George. Uh, That was really spectacular. Uh, We do have a, a, um, a number of questions. One really interesting question is has to do with durable immunity. Um, and what, what determines who gets durable immunity? And, and how do we know that the vaccine is going to be more durable than natural infection or vice versa?
0: Well, because the vaccine, so that um, a lot of times durable immunity is a function of getting re-exposed to natural, naturally occurring virus. Uh, so one of the reasons the smallpox vaccine worked so well in the 19th century is that people were continuously getting re-exposed to it, whereas now it doesn't seem to work so well because there's no continuous re-exposure. Um, the The reason that vaccine virus may that the vaccines may work better than naturally occurring virus is they're going to provide a constant stream of these spike proteins into the uh, into the bloodstream and into the respiratory tract, um, and so that the immune system will see it all the time, and they'll keep up high levels uh, high levels of immunity as opposed to getting it once, having it go, go away, and not getting re-stimulated, possibly.
1: Um, something totally different. Um, what is your thinking about the seasonality of the disease? And, you know, we're used to viruses that are so active in the winter and then calm down, yeah. and, and what's happening in the southern hemisphere, and what are we learning about the seasonality? Yeah.
0: So this is probably not a seasonal virus. It's certainly not a seasonal virus now. Uh, It may become one in the future. Um, Seasonality is determined by a lot of things, but at least the way I think about it, it's the seasonality is a function of being indoors. Uh, And when you get to come outdoors in the summer or in the late spring, you see the winter viruses drop off. What we've seen in the Southern hemisphere, interestingly, is almost no flu season at all. And that's been ascribed. That's been, um, the reason is, is first of all, there's not a new flu mutation this year to deal with. The second thing, and everybody's wearing masks and and maintaining social distance. Um, And so there's been an astronomically small uh, flu season um, uh, this year. Um, And that's probably a good thing. Uh, There is co-infection, you can get flu and SARS-CoV-2 co-infection. But the real reason is we don't want the ICUs filled up with people who have a preventable disease, influenza, um, who have not gotten vaccinated or vaccine failures, while we still have to have, you know, maintain the capacity for SARS-CoV-2 infections. So if you haven't been vaccinated, get vaccinated. It's really important. And while that is the Southern Hemisphere's experience,
1: Don't bank on it. Good advice. What do you think is happening in Africa?
0: Uh, That was a damn good question. (laughs) Uh, I think uh, in more temperate parts of Africa, like South Africa, they've had experiences much like we have in more tropical parts of Africa. They really don't, you know, that's funny. They, they've seen, they've obviously seen some, uh, but it's, for some reason, uh, in Tanzania specifically, and I'm trying to pick this apart. Uh, we've been trying to pick this apart with a student. Um, we're just not seeing it. So early on, there was a, a big rash of deaths. You know, government ministers. You know, senior people. Um, it, but the same kind of pattern. You know, the elderly and stuff. Uh, and now it's like almost nobody. Uh, and the big teaching hospital in Dar es Salaam doesn't have many patients in it. And you know, I mean, you, you know, you think maybe they're just not bothering to diagnose it, but no, there are no patients that sort of fit the profile in the hospitals either. So I think maybe it's just because the population is so young um, and, you know, this, the, the African population is so much younger than ours. And, you know, maybe they really aren't, you know, if they're, they're getting it, it's just it's largely asymptomatic or uh, or mildly symptomatic. And we're just not seeing it. Um, for whatever reason, in, in older people. the other, Another reason is people are outdoors more, and maybe there's less chance of transmitting it.
1: I have a question to get back to the issue about testing. Uh, you, you implied that if someone, go, is, is a college student is in a high-risk community and coming back to the Bay Area, uh, they should get tested. Um, and some colleges are doing a lot of that. Some are doing less of it. Yeah, and yeah. then I also get asked by patients, what if they, for whatever reason, even after you recommend that they not travel back east for some reason they have to go in a low prevalence environment should they get tested and if so before they travel when they get back and so on
0: yeah yeah so cdc would say you have to quarantine 14 days on both ends of it that's what their advice is so you might want to pay not pay attention to that um that's probably overkill what i i think you get so you know what we're dealing with is this window period this this three-day window period before between exposure and when you're test turns positive. So I think kids coming back from college and you, I think you have to basically assume every college is a hotbed of infection. I don't know who saw the end of the Notre Dame Clemson, Clemson game on Saturday, but there'll be 2000 cases by Wednesday, you know, by today, you know, for sure. Um, I, I, so what I say is, so the safest thing to do is not do it, right? <laughs> um, get tested, uh, lay low. Um, you know, wear masks. Don't come and try and you know avoid contact with people. You know these. You know, don't go to any fraternity parties. Um, fly home, uh, come home, uh, quarantine in your house, which means no contact, right? Uh, wear masks if you go if you have to go out, and then get tested say maybe three days later. And that way you're dealing with that window period of, of three days. Or you could wait you know, a few more days and say, well, let's just assume that the, that the exposure could, could have been on the airplane. That's pretty unlikely, by the way, on these shorter flights. Um, and then you wait more like five days after they got back to test them. I, I, had, my, I had my daughter test herself, get, go to Kaiser and get tested the, the day after she got back. back. And she got tested a couple of days beforehand uh, in Virginia. So that's kind of how I approach it. Now, if you have to go back, uh, back east uh, for whatever reason, um, I think it's, you know, you're you're playing with fire. You know, I mean, my basic, you know, advice is don't do it. You know, that's why you have Zoom. But if you have to go back and visit elderly parents, for instance, um, I think you need to be prepared to quarantine. Uh, to to use a combination of of testing before travel and after travel and quarantining until you get a second negative result before you really kind of enter their bubble. Um, And you need to be outside of their bubble uh, until then. And then when you come back to San Francisco, you come back to San Francisco and do whatever you want. It depends on if you're, if you're living with your 95 year old mother-in-law, then you probably get caught in the reverse of
1: that. Um. There was an, a question about the um, something totally different about the, uh, the the mutations from the minks in uh, Denmark, and uh, it's
0: my new favorite story. Yeah.
1: Where, where, where are the uh, where, and how much is mutation going to turn out to be a big issue with this virus?
0: One of the problems with with viruses, especially zoonotic viruses, is that it can get into other popular other species. And you remember the story about the tigers at the Bronx Zoo. That's because felines have ACE2 inhibitors in their upper airways, as do musculids. Muskelids are things like otters and ferrets and minks and sables and stuff, you know, muskrats, wolverines. Um, <clears throat> and they have very similar kind of receptor architecture as as humans. Um, so the this <clears throat> these minks got infected and then they kind of pap- probably passed it around. Uh, in these big enclosed populations, um, which are like a cruise ship, you know, in many ways. Uh, and they got, um, and, and they've started to do adapt to minks. So the virus tries to get, you know, it gets more and more efficient for, <laughs> sorry, transmission and and, um, and um, um, replication in minks. And then they started, it got like 15 farmers, who got infected with this variant strain and that pushed all the alarm bills because this is a, for in humans, this was somewhat more pathogenic. At least that was the thought. Um, and so what they've done is that they're in the process of culling the entire uh, mink industry in Denmark with 15 million minks and they're destroying the pelts. I hate to tell you, but that's the, you know, that's what happens when you have this sort of massive animal husbandry and one of these viruses gets gets loose in it they also have other um uh there's a spanish industry there was some farms in utah where they had to cull all the animals um and so it's you know that's that's what's going on uh and they think they've also locked down all of northern denmark i mean hard hard lockdown uh and they're going to contain this and they're not going to let anybody uh, get out who's infected and start spreading it from human to human right now it's it's mink to human and it stops, uh, but there's concern is that it could be human to human transmission. Uh,
1: we have a lot of other good questions. I think we don't quite have the time for all of them, but maybe on if if you're sitting with a patient who um, is say 65 years old and in generally good health, but has one or two chronic conditions, um, and they're asking what what can I do? You know, how how tight a shelter must I do? Um, what are you? What are some things that you would advise them to do? Uh, you've touched on flying, indoor restaurants, gyms, and so forth. But um, and I guess you're not doing most of those. But what are some of the other things? Where do you draw the line?
0: I'm flattered that you think I'm 65
1: years old. I wish I were. <laughs> uh, um, I wasn't talking about you. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Well, you got to wear about masks. the next patient. I'm going to see. Yeah, okay. Uh,
0: you got to wear masks. I encourage people to, to, you know, who are going to be exposed, like going on an airplane to wear glasses. Um, and you know, you all, you guys all wear safety glasses, you know, with the sides and stuff. But, um, there was actually a study in China that said it reduced the risk of uh, being hospitalized 13 fold. If you had myopia, um, and had to wear glasses more than eight hours a day. And that speaks to conjunctival protection. um, we go i go to the uh, old folks hour at at uh, trader joe's I, and and i think it cuts down it cuts down exposure a lot i i'm really conscious of exposure and avoid um situations in which there could be you know like a lot of people walking around with no masks just walk turn around and walk out of the place um so i'm um you know i think you have to really go the extra yard um to uh, to avoid exposure, and that means wearing masks, wearing glasses, and really avoiding indoor spaces to the greatest extent possible.
1: So no indoor res- no Michael Minna yet.
0: Oh, the other Michael Minna, yeah. No,
1: <laughs> there's one last question about masks. Uh, uh, how 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 big a difference is there between different masks in, in the non medical settings? So
0: I have my props here. This is an N95 mask, okay? This is from Home Depot. This is not the one to get because it has this thing here, which is an exhaust valve. That means if you have this, you're going to be exhausting all the virus out, right? So you don't want don't want the ones with these things on. These are complicated to use. They have to be fit tested by somebody who knows what they're doing. So it has to really fit tightly. You can't have a beard I mean, I realize, Bobby, you may be cheating on this a little bit, but you can't have a beard and have these things fit correctly. So then you have surgical masks, you know, which work pretty well. People have cloth masks, you know, which with two-ply. They can have filters built into them. Those work work quite well. Bandanas, gaiters, you know, two-ply maybe, probably okay, but not as great. So I actually, when I go out, I wear uh, I wear surgical masks. If I were gonna fly on an airplane, I'd wear an N95 if I, if I had one or wear both a, um, if you had only one I have is this one with the valve on it, I'd wear a surgical mask underneath it. And there was another good paper that came out last week that looked at uh, pulse oximetry in older people who exercised with masks on. So they exercised them, they checked their before and after they put a mask on them, checked it before and after. Uh, and actually, when they put the mask on them, their their oxygenation went up. Uh, so I mean it wasn't significantly, but it went, it did go up. So that's the good news. You can uh um these aren't gonna cut down your oxygenation. You're not gonna think more slowly, you're not gonna make mistakes. Keep just keep your mask on.
1: Well, George, I think we need to stop. Uh, I know you could go on forever, and I I think our audience probably could as well, but uh, we should respect the time. And uh, I just want to thank you so much uh, for uh, for tonight and uh, for everything you've done, uh, even since before the COVID uh, pandemic, but certainly during it. And uh, it's really been a remarkable run, and uh, we all are uh, tremendously grateful uh, for your work. So thank you for tonight, and uh, stay well. And uh, for everyone in the audience, uh, Also stay safe and uh, take care of each other and we'll see you again uh, next week. So thank you very much.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.